think I had become basically depleted uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally of everything probably about a year prior to me turning 25. And so I was kind of just running on self-will at that point. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. here with Michael Failer today, a fellow local Fort Thomas, Kentucky, born and raised guy like myself. So thanks for being here. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And we uh, just met officially five minutes ago, mm-hmm. but had been talking and uh, my mother-in-law had you speak. She was a PE teacher at our local mm-hmm. high school, had you speak a few times. Yes. So that's kind of how we hooked up and... Uh, or in between in grades from my wife and my sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. So there's some ties there, mm-hmm. normally are with with a small town. Sure. So uh, you know, I appreciate you coming to do this. So um, I think the first thing is just to, you know, take us through your, your journey of uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and coming out on the other side. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. It's always a fun, it, you know, looking back on it, there's a lot of experience and there's a, a lot of things that happen, you know, to come from a small town where everybody's kind of interconnected and, you know, there's a lot of kids and it seems like not a lot of things to do. Um, but, you know, I can only say that um, where my journey took me is 100% my own. Um, I don't have any, um, you know, in-home examples of, you know, drinking or drug use or anything like that, that I went out and found that myself and um as a result you know it'll take you to places you don't want to go and um you know growing up in in fort thomas it is that town within a bubble you know everybody knows everybody everybody shares with everybody and a lot of people have to be sneaky about what they do and i think that was a big thing is you know you have to be very covert about your operations up there (laughs) and um you know, as a result of becoming kind of ninja-like with a lot of things, you know, um, I was able to get away with a, a lot of things. And um, that included, you know, uh, introduction to drugs and alcohol and um, going down that route. And, um, you know, I didn't set off in any means, shape or form to become that. Um, I know that probably about 12, 13, that's my introduction to alcohol. You know, I think that's a probably about a regular age for most kids. And it wasn't uh, anything out of the ordinary other than a nice house in Fort Thomas with a parents with a fully stocked beer fridge. And it was on, you know, it was um, a validation for me at that point that I had become a man by getting my own bottle of beer and not sipping off, you know, grandpa's, you know, little sips here, little wine here for mom or anything like that. It was validation. And um, I, uh, I do remember my first drink. I, I do remember, um, the one thing that is consistent from my first drink to my last drink is the amount of lies that come with it. And basically, I say that because I lied where I was, who I was with, what I was doing. And um, that was consistent for another 14 years, pretty much down the rabbit hole. But uh, after that drink, I rode my little huffy bike that four blocks to get home. And um, I was late for dinner, and I was really surprised my mom didn't catch me. She had the nose of a bloodhound. And uh, I'm I'm really surprised, but um, I knew at that point I got away with it. 
And uh, I'm one of those guys that I'll keep doing something until either I get caught or the pain becomes too great. And it was one of those examples of I didn't get caught, so let's just keep doing this. And it wasn't like the next day I went out and did it again or anything, but um, a little bit of plotting and planning and, you know, a few weekends later and it just progressively goes down that hole. And, um, you know, uh, decisions were being made for me that uh, I didn't know were being made by drinking and doing drugs. Um, It was already making decisions who I was going to hang out with, where I was going to work, what I was going to do. You know, how I was going to be with people. And um, as a result of that, you really don't get a lot of really good kind of career jobs, you know, when you can't pee in a cup or uh, you can't, you know, sober up the night before you show up to, you know, do an interview or something like that. So that automatically kind of puts you in that seven to eight dollar an hour kind of job category. And that was perfect for a guy like me when I started working at 16. Um you know, I worked at the uh, the local Jiffy Lube down on Carruthers when it yeah. was still there, and um, dropping drain plugs and and you know smoking weed behind the dumpster and and hanging out with my boss and he was he was a fantastic guy. Um, he had a really fun habit at the time of uh, I believe it was um, maybe it was Xanax, but he would take this whole bottle of Xanax and he'd smash it up. All at once and, and make a giant pile and then he'd split it in halves and he'd do one giant half and he'd hop on his 600 Honda crotch rocket and do, you, you know, indos and wheelies up and down Crothers Avenue for about an hour, come back, sleep, wake up and then do it again for another This was hour. during work. During work. And this was the manager of the store. That's the manager of my store. <laughs> and I was like, this is a great place for a guy like me. You know, what What else can Jeez. I ask for? You know, I don't need uh, insurance. I don't need a company vacation on any of that. You know, just hanging out with these guys is a riot, you know. But um, thankfully, I never caused any harm as far as other people's cars or anything like that. Um, um, still had somewhat of a wherewithal of what I was doing at that point. But... Um, I would probably say, you know, at crossing over somewhat of an imaginary line, a lot of people talking about is to like that stage of your drinking where all control is lost is, you know, I it's fuzzy for me, but I would probably guess that somewhere around, you know, 18, 19 is that genre of where that happened. Because I can remember plenty of days um, making conscious decisions that uh, I didn't want to drink. You know, or this wouldn't be a good idea to drink. I have a commitment to keep or I have a party to get to or somewhere to go or, you know, something. Something responsible to do. Exactly. And what would happen is that insane idea would win out and uh, it would happen all over again. You know, I know the the over talked about movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, how it's reliving that same day and really. That's the best example I can give to a lot of people of what it feels like when you're out there in that madness. It's the same wake up, start the process, find who's got what, where to go, and get through the day somehow, and then repeat. And um, if you're really out there in it, it's not that fun. After a while, it's not fun. It was fun for maybe two years, and then I think after that, you become a slave of it. And... um, the last three to four years was truly a slave. Um, you know, the further you go down the hole, the less employable you are, the less responsible you are. You know, um, 
you can't differentiate between the true and the false anymore. I was 100% delusional of to what reality was. Um, I think a lot of people I talked to would be like, you, you know, we knew there was <laughs> there was something, but you know, people, you know, really come into that and address that. Um, because I probably would have reacted the way that anybody would have reacted. Like, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong. You know, deny it to the very bitter end, plead the fifth, whatever. And um, just as a result of getting that delusional and the insanity being that high is yet yeah, everybody's against you. You believe, you know, black and white fever runs high. Mm-hmm. Everybody, you know, always watching for this and watching for that, you know. Um, so what age when things came to a halt? 25. 25. 25. August the 1st of 07. Now, did it become anything besides alcohol or was that pretty much the drug of choice? Well, I mean, alcohol was always my my married one, let's call it. That was my wife. And um, oh, plenty of substances to go around. In no way, shape or form, my purebred alcoholic. I think that's very rare these days. Um, But it really didn't matter. It was, you know, my favorite drugs are always yours and more. And I don't care, you know. And... um, I think what made me realize that stuff is there were times where I would stop doing drugs. Either I couldn't get it, didn't have enough money to get it, the the connect ran dry or whatever. But booze was always there. Mm-hmm. And booze always took care of what I needed to take care of. It might not be as clean or right. as whatever. Filler. Yeah. But when I would try to put booze down, it just, I couldn't do it. So that's why I identify with what I identify with. And um, drinking was just... It was always there. It's so innocent, you know. You go to the Ameristop, you can go to Marathon, Speedway, whatever. It's just right there. Just open a door and walk out, you know. I When I was 21, I went to the local marathon in Fort Thomas, and they were always kind of – they're a family-owned business, and they're always kind of hard up about checking IDs and kids and all that kind of stuff. And I remember I got my, my official 21 ID, and it was going to be a big thing. First place, I was really going to legally buy beer, and they didn't even ID me. I felt like I got robbed <laughs> of like 10 yeah. years of thinking about it, and I just didn't get it, you know. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, something about that. I felt like I missed the mark, but um, it was just always so innocent. It was available. It was easy. You know, uh, my older brother was always gracious enough when I was younger to, um, you know, provide the trip to the liquor store for me. Give him 20 bucks. He'd bring you 10 beers back and keep the change kind of guy. Yeah, I had the same. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it was just, it was there, small town. Did your parents catch on? Did it become strained? I mean, how did that all work? Well, it's interesting as far as, I'm kind of glad you asked that. Um. My older brother is up for debate, you know. Um, he's definitely done, oh, definitely made a lot of poor decisions in his life um, as far as uh, when it comes to drinking and drugs and things of that nature. And um, my parents were very savvy, you know. My mom was actually in Al-Anon for probably six or seven years prior to when I stopped drinking. Mm. And I didn't even notice. That's, uh, I was so... Caught up with what I was doing, I didn't realize that on Thursday nights she was going to meet at a seven o'clock meeting, you know, like 12 steps, black belt status kind of stuff in Al-Anon, like she yeah. was the real deal. And um, they knew a lot, but um, I knew how to be really sneaky. And with an older brother who's out there just being an idiot, drawing all kinds of attention, I learned to really fly under the radar, you know. My mom, I think when I was about 12, you know, told me that, you know, 
I know where you've been in the house. And I said, how? She said, well, like everywhere you go, you leave like the cabinet door open or you leave this and that. Breadcrumbs. And from that point on, like a ninja, like I don't even hit floorboards in my house anymore. You know, and my wife always kind of jumps when I walk in the house. It's just uh, leave no trace, you know. And I think I, when I followed that, um, I was able to get away with a lot more. But there were plenty of red flags that had to show up in the beginning, at least. In the end, it was 100% obvious. But in the beginning, there was a lot of late night phone calls. Uh, there was a lot of showing up way later than you should, that kind of stuff. My parents um, always tried to keep us responsible, and um, they would try to set a curfew that was reasonable for the age. And if you were going to be late, at least call and let them know that you're going to be late, be responsible about it. And um, when my, you know, in the early days it was tougher because my old man would answer the phone in his sleep and say, oh, yeah, I hang up. And the next morning you were like, you didn't call. The day we got caller ID, it was great because I could call and the number would pop up, just one ring, and then hang up, and then like yeah, prove that I you called. called. Yeah, I called. See, it rang once. It's on the ID, and um, just that kind of stuff to be sneaky to just keep doing. But um, red flags um, with other than me showing up late, um, just odd behavior on my behalf. You know, um, my parents are very Type A's. They're very they're very hardworking and they're very intelligent as far as a lot of things are concerned. But um, when it comes to what my brother and I were doing, I think some of it was just over their head, you know, is really what was going on. Because, you know, being basically 70-something years old now, you know, back in the 60s, it was like, you know, you could you could drink and if you got pulled over, the cops will give you a ride home. And now it's, it's a whole different era of things. And there's, there's things kids are making out of stuff they find in the, the kitchen cabinets and Crazy. the garage and, and some of this stuff is really getting out there. So I just don't think they were really up to speed. And to be honest, I don't think they shouldn't really need to be up to speed. That's not fair. You know, it's just that what we were doing was really pushing the limits. We were being sneaky. We were doing all kinds of things and it was, it would really be hard for anybody to catch up. With the Al-Anon, did she ever approach you or try to have talks with you about really what she thought time, was going on? One time when I was about 14, um, she sat down with me, and it was just a simple conversation. And it was uh, essentially, um, your grandfather died from alcoholism. You know, he died from cirrhosis of the liver. Um, your dad's brother um, also, there's something going on out for debate. Um, my father's that kind of stuff. Try to get into kind of the genetic yeah. side of that kind of stuff. And um, I heard what she was saying, but at 14 years old, I'm bulletproof. You know, I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I can jump over cars. This is not going to hurt me kind of stuff. And once again, that's like the ominous warning, which I failed to heed. You know, um, maybe if I could have, Maybe comprehended that a little bit deeper, but at that point, I was already pretty much in motion yeah. of what was happening. What kind of crew were you hanging out with for that, let's call it, last five years or 10 years? I mean, was it just high school friends or was it were you starting to get into bad influence to, uh, to keep the charade was, alive? It was a light mixture in the last couple of years. It was, a, it was a mixture of both, really, because what... High school friends that I did have at that time were basically doing the same thing because you don't ask questions. And that's why you have a crew like that around is, you know, 
nobody's going to really ask like, is that too much? You know, <laughs> kind of stuff. And um, you start getting mingled in with different types of people, different type of personalities and characters and stuff like that, that um, were not in your small town, you know, and you're getting to see kind of life in the raw from another person's point of view. Um, I was never really drawn to that, but um, I did find it interesting because, I mean, where we grew up, it's very simple, but now there's out, there's people out here and this is, this is the real. And, um, you get your eyes opened up pretty quick being in those spots with those people and, um, just take it all with a grain of salt. But, um, if anything, um, I really gravitated more towards just being a loner than anything else. Isolating. Um, That's easier. It is. If I hear any more people say two minutes on the phone, I'm going to smash it on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. If I hear pick me up and do this, even to this day, when I see like four guys drive by my house and like a car and the back end's kind of sagging, I'm like, you guys are up to something, you know, like, cause that's how we always roll deep, you know, yes. like this guy's got this much, his much, we put it all together and we end up with this. And then like, that's why we roll together, you know? And, um, that stuff just got so old. And um, I think probably towards the last couple of years of, of drinking, like I, I'd always call myself a magician because I'd like, I, once I start drinking, I just disappear. Absolutely. I, Copperfield, I, man. Exactly. I was the same I was way. gone. I like to go out at five and <sighs> out of there at midnight. Uh-huh. And you don't have time to say bye to everybody. No. And I say, I just cut my losses and I'm just yep. like gone, mm-hmm. you know, Kaiser Sose stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but isolation, I mean, I, it's so interesting to me because so many people end up there mm-hmm. and I mean, wh- why do you think that is? I mean, th- I'm, there, there's shame, there's, you know, all the other stuff gets old. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I remember, you know, that's how it was for me at the end is I was just in my basement mm-hmm. doing as much cocaine mm-hmm. as humanly possible. And, um, yeah, I mean, wallow, I mean, there's self-pity there, but it's also just a, it's a miserable thing, but I wonder how we gravitate towards the isolation. What, what, what's your thought on For that? me, it's like a lot of what you said with like the guilt, shame, the remorse, the fear, all of that. Um, and then it all kind of gets coupled together. For me, at least, it gets coupled together of um, I don't like a lot of people asking me questions. You know, I don't like people in my business. Mm-hmm. And um, I figure if I can just do what I want to do. Everybody just leave me alone. And even growing up as, you know, a kid, I wasn't like 100% individual, like solo rolling by myself. But um, as somewhat of an introvert, like I always kind of preferred that process. You know, there's a lot of people that can hang out with groups and just hear all the squawking that goes on and this and that or whatever. Like the problem I equate to people is like I hear everything and there's times where I need to be separated from people and my brain has to process all of that and some people are like well you know whatever but i literally could almost hear everything that like my wife says i may not hear it at the moment but it's all in there it's just what's the focus of the moment but by being alone i can um listen to the music i want to listen to i can do whatever i want i can go wherever i want and i don't i just never wanted to be slaved or chained to, to somebody and, and their ideas of what was fun. You know, I've, if I wanted to go do my thing and, um, like either sit in the basement, and listen to music. That's one thing. If I want to go work on cars, that's one thing. Um, just leave me alone and let me 
seem like I'm going to figure this all out. That was always like the thing. You ever stare at the, the mirror behind the bar and stare at yourself and just be like, this, well, we're going to put together a plan. It's always we. We're going to put together this plan. And um, a lot of kind of self, self-thought self would go on during those moments of alone time. Like, what's what's the plan? What are we going to do? How are we going to figure this out? You know, go get it, a job. Which is a dangerous place to be. Oh, absolutely. Inside our own head. Oh, you know absolutely. What I mean? And there's also, you know, what's big in recovery is, you know, we're also extraordinarily self-centered. 100%. You know, so we sit there and... You know, I don't know if it's people aren't worthy of being with us, but you know, I, I don't have time. <laughs> That's in my mind. I don't. Yeah. Have time. I don't want to talk on the phone. Right. You know, I just same as you. I just rather do my own thing, and then. Mm-hmm. But if I was gonna do something, mm-hmm. I would plan it out so far in advance mm-hmm. that it was guaranteed to go my way, mm-hmm. almost obsessively. I mean, yep. if we're going out on Saturday, yep. You know. I, surprises I, I can't do surprises you know mm-hmm. so i would i would very <laughs> subliminally say okay well we're going to go down to jerseys yeah. or we're going to go here and uh b- basically have it so planned out that nobody's going to question anything mm-hmm. but if we would somehow have a change of plan mm-hmm. you know i would act like a baby mm-hmm. you know I, it ruined me for for some reason but right. yeah there, there's there's all kinds of reasons that that happens but it's it's interesting that a lot of people wind up by yourself mm-hmm. and especially when things get bad mm-hmm. you know because really bad because i was going i was going crazy yep well i didn't i knew i didn't want people to really see me in that physical condition for right. one um that you know loving shade of gray we get the eyeballs start to roll in your head you know you probably haven't showered maybe brush your teeth right. and yeah. that and you know lord knows if you've done laundry probably not you know, I'm, I've met plenty of people that, uh, you know, they squat, abandoniums, whatever you want to call them. I, I have one good friend. He was like, man, when things got bad, I would just pitch a tent inside an abandoned house and it'd be like camping, you know, and that was his way of dealing with it. I've heard people like hanging up pictures in abandoned places and, and just totally slipping into that. And, um, you know, I would have moments of clarity when I was out there and and be in these places. I've been to these places, places where you're not supposed to go. And um, I would just get these these glimpses of like I I'd, I'd look around the room of like where I was in, and um, there's something about to me like when you see stuff and like between the corner and the wall, and it's just been sitting there for like weeks, like food or crumbs and just stuff just jammed in there or whatever and that kind of shows to me like uh the sense of not being clean and and all the things that come with it and it was like those would shock me for a minute or two at a time like this is this is your best plan this is what this is what we're doing yeah right. this is what you've come up with and this is where we are is this what you want? And um, I'd be like, no, mentally, like this is this isn't it. But quickly drown that out as fast as possible to continue what you're doing. And but, some of it's just split second. I mean, I can't instant. tell you how many horrible decisions I made. Mm-hmm. And I would have a a moment of clarity prior to each one of those mm-hmm. and say, you know, I'm about to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, self. Yep. yep. Talking to yourself that that is, I, I'm risking. Me, I'm risking my family, I'm risking my business, mm-hmm. but it was like, yeah, in one ear, out the other, because I know, I know what I got to do. Oh, I could justify anything in a heartbeat, you know, I'm, 
I'm driving a car that's got Kentucky plates that has a loud exhaust that stands out like a turd in a punch bowl. And I'm going amongst the Claremont County sheriffs and over the Rhine in the pit down in Finley Market, you know, just trying to blend in. You know, right. nobody will notice. And that's the justification. Nobody will notice. And, uh, yeah, it it's amazing. The and That's, once again, the insane idea wins out. Yeah. And there we and are. And at the end, I was like, man, well, I'm not driving. I was taking Ubers everywhere. <laughs> Literally. I said, okay, well, I can play golf on Thursday. Yeah. Get completely fucking destroyed. Mm-hmm. Go home. And I can now I can now take an Uber to work. Yeah. Because I don't have to take a nasty-ass mm-hmm. cab to go get my car. I can just Uber to work. Mm-hmm. I'll get there early so people think – and they'll see my car in the mm-hmm. parking lot. They'll think I've been here since 6. Mm-hmm. You know, So I am just scot-free. You mm-hmm. know, But then I was taking – I mean, everywhere. My wife's like, do you – is that your mode of transportation now? Because she didn't really know <laughs> the extent hey, of what sure. was going on. Sure. She, you know, we were ships in the night. I mean, she knew something was up. but mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I – there was all kinds of validation, but yeah, I mean, once this Uber thing came out, I was like, man, I am, mm-hmm. you know, I'd have my drugs at work. I'd have them at home. I'd take an Uber to work. I'd have it in my briefcase. I'm mm-hmm. like, I am unfreaking touchable, mm-hmm. you know? So that's just another kind of way of. It um, always gets me like the, the level of planning oh. with some of that. Um, <laughs> this it gets goes exhausting. like this goes in the left pocket this goes in the right pocket you know everything is meticulously planned out for whatever may happen throughout the day in order to make it through the day right you know um that that kind of level of thinking for me is you know i i had friends that were very like willy-nilly through life you know like let's show up man it'll we'll just do this it'll be fine we'll we'll go to the concert we don't have a ticket we'll, we'll figure it out you know and Always on point. Uh, and I think that really comes from with, um, I'd heard a saying, and maybe from my old man, it was like a man without a plan is planning to fail. And I just latched onto that and it was always keep everything. In. And it translates, yeah. and it's almost backwards because, you know, I, I turned out to be this train wreck. But I mean, I was always <laughs> early to stuff. My dad, you know, yep. same thing. You know, always mm-hmm. be early to know. Mm-hmm. So I was. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if somebody said, let's go down to a concert, we don't have a ticket, let's just, just let's just roll with it and have fun. I mean, I'd be like, yeah, absolutely not. It all unravels. Yeah, we're not going to go down there. I mean, you know, what if, what if, what if, what mm-hmm. if? I've never been a go with the flow guy, and mm-hmm. really still struggle with that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that that's the, and at the end, that's ego, hundred percent self centered, mm-hmm. and thinking about our out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But it's also hard to hard to block that off in your mind because mm-hmm. it's just it's obsessive compulsive, which just gets us into the shit that we get ourselves into. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a daily process, definitely, 100%. Um, my wife is, um, bless her heart, is less organized than I am. And that's okay. We complement each other very well. And I'm glad because if we were both in the same ship, I think, uh, you know, it, w- it would be like nails and eyeballs daily, you know. But um, her method... Just the other day, here's here's a really good example. Just the other day, I think I had bought something. It wasn't correct, and I had to return it. And I was like, I got to go take it back and return it, you know, like ASAP, you know. <laughs> like, I have no idea why. It's just one of those things. Get it off my counter. We got to do it. It's got to be done. Move on. And um, she asked me the question. She was like, when was the last time you did like an impulse buy? And I was like, <laughs> I couldn't even tell you. 30 years, you know, like I have no idea. And she's like, try something. And I was like, mm-mm. 
<laughs> no, no. It's just something about just some of that OCDism, I guess you could sure, call it. Right. Not always that, but just um, just being self-aware. I think that um, is one thing I'm hugely aware of in my life ever since stopping drinking is right. self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, how often do you go to a gas station? And, you know, I, I'm not trying to judge. That's not my position. But I just look around at the people that it's just whatever in front of them, that's what they're doing. And that's it. And that may sound judgy. I don't mean to sound that way if I do, but um, it seems like they they live within their own little bubble and their own, you know, those blinders and that vision. And um, when I stopped drinking, I was able to see kind of the world in color in full view. Like that really stuck out to me. And that's why I am, you know, I'm not the guy that stands in doorways. That's that's a big problem for me. Like people stand in doorways. I'm not the guy at Starbucks asking about the non-fat brand muffin when there's 40 people behind him. It's just be aware of your surroundings and that there are other people in this world. And I think as a result of that, I get along a lot better within the world than just trying to get out there and punch my will into everything because we know the result of that and it's usually bad every time. So let's talk about turning the corner. Mm-hmm. What was the moment, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back if you will was there an event that kind of shut everything down wow um it was kind of actually a string of events um i think i had become basically depleted um physically mentally spiritually emotionally of everything um probably about a year prior to me turning 25 and so i was kind of just running on self-will at that point just go you know against everything that i wanted i was still just going and um, I will admit that um, thoughts of suicide have entered at that point. You know, they weren't 100% comfortable, but those thoughts had entered. And, um, you know, when those thoughts and things start coming in and you start realizing that um, you can't make it an eight-hour shift at work, there were there – were, I used to have a really nice job, and I would um, go down into the parking lot, which was – a an open-air parking lot in a U-shaped complex with, a, like, fresh sealed blacktop. And I'd go out to the trunk of my car and I'd pop it and take a few nips of vodka just to go back in and finish my day. But um, that's when I was in my early 20s. By the time I was in my mid-20s, like, getting to work really wasn't an option, let alone being presentable for work or, you know, being there. Um, that's the employable part of it. Um, friends pretty much none at that point you know i had pretty much pushed everybody away that i possibly could um i'd either stolen from them or just straight pushed them off stop answering don't want to be affiliated kind of stuff because i knew that it was really getting bad and it wasn't for their sake to save them it was just like you don't want to watch this boat go down guys you know it's gonna sink it's gonna crack in half before it hits the bottom but it's it's going to happen and um with everything adding up um criminal history starts start getting introduced to the the commonwealth of kentucky and their criminal justice system that's always fun get a few sets of bracelets put on you stand in front of a few judges um all that kind of added up to the point where in october of 07 or i'm sorry august of 07 um just couldn't find the will to live it seemed like anymore I, i know that um that day I woke up trying to just 
get the hustle on like we always do, make some connections, make something work, find somebody, you know, find something to scrap or pawn or sell, you know, and um, just nothing, nothing was left. And that's when you kind of take a look at your pivotal pivot point in life and just realize that, that there's nobody. You know, my parents love me. They don't understand the full terms of what's happening. Um, they're, they're also kind of keeping their distance because they don't know what's happening. Um, you know, my sister, who is, you know, married and kids and all that stuff, um, knows not to associate. Friends don't associate. Unemployable, uninsurable, all that stuff just down the pot. And um, you couple in, you know, criminal side, probation, parole, drug tests. And um, finally, at the result of that, it's just you have nowhere to run anymore. You know, um I tried every various plan and option out there, I think, imaginable before just stopped drinking. <laughs> you know, I uh, I was like, well, we'll self-medicate. We'll, we'll try the church route. We'll try, you know, uh, like bongo groups and meditation with Nag Champa incense and take your shoes off. I tried all that stuff and it was just it it wasn't there because I'd always find myself drunk again, you know however many minutes or hours or days later and just no viable solution to anything at that point. And, um, you know, a nudge from the judge is really a great start for a guy like me. Cause like I say in the beginning, um, you know, I'm not only going to stop when it gets too painful or I get caught and I got caught way too many times. You know, I have, uh, two felonies for theft, two misdemeanors for theft. I'm not a good thief. It's my, record shows that i'm not good at this no matter how good of a planner yeah exactly <laughs> execution's poor at that yeah. point you know but um you know I, I i um i get to go down to the camel county detention center i get to go sit and you know bob barker sandals and the stripes and all that kind of stuff and i think that's really was a turning point for me um i'd done a couple overnighters and a couple dayers here and this and that kind of stuff but this time um there was no there's no bail. Your technical violation of probation, it's sit until somebody says we're going to do something and they're in no hurry, I assure you for that. And um, I looked around where I was and who the guys I was with. I'm in the funky back pot of Campbell County. I'm the 15th man in a 10-man pot. I'm floating the boat on the floor. I'm in there with center block walls, a 10-inch TV, and it smells like nothing but assholes and elbows in there, you know. And um, that was my 100% awakening. And somewhere... This seed had been planted months prior of, if this is the bottom, there's only one way to go, and that's up if you want to work for it. And um, that that is the whole turning point for me, is there. Um, that How long was were you there? Just, that time? Just a shade under six months. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was currently... Being, I was currently in on felony diversion. I caught on the felony on felony diversion. Don't do that. The state of Kentucky hates when you do that. Um, and currently, once that was settled, is what are we going to do with this guy? Because here you have two felonies right on top of each other. Are they going to run them together? Are they going to send me down to go get a number to go to prison? Am I going to go to the rotary farm, they call it, and then they you know shuffle you out from there? Um, what's going to happen? And... Um, what had happened was, I love that saying, what had happened was, um, by trying to take some kind of program of action in a fellowship that I had started becoming a member of, I was able to find something that was bigger than me, a God of my understanding, and 
there were things being worked in the background that I had no control over in a good way. And what what happened was um, everything got run on probation, inpatient treatment at the druggy house in Dayton, the real druggy house. Um, at that time, um, was as simple as simple gets. It was all about what are you doing here? And I love that about it. But that's the plan that was put into motion for me. What did you start doing after after the aha moment? I mean, what were your your plan of action besides the fellowship? I mean, how did you kind of turn the ship around and become a valuable member of society, if you will? I, uh, I, I came to the realization within those center block walls that I had never finished anything in my damn life prior to that. I was a great starter, terrible finisher, bad execution. And uh, for me, it started with one thing very simple is I wanted to finish something. So I got my hands on, it was one of these um, like Harlequin romance novel. They were like a hundred pages at the time, like big font, double space kind of stuff. But I wanted to finish this book. I don't care how terrible it was. And I finished it. And the next thing you know, I got another book and I finished it. I finished it. And I finished it. And it was something about that it was like a pat on my own back for doing something good. And I was really surprised that my brain actually worked for the amount of damage that I thought that I had done to it. You know, the left side and the right side, they work. There's not a big hole in there. And um, I was reading any book I get my hands on. I remember one time it, there was this big, thick, four-inch thick book, and it was all about, like, United States tax law. And I don't know why, but I just started ingesting this information to finish this book, and I did. And I became kind of the library for uh, myself at the time, and I had – you know, I trade books and this and that. And um, then I met a guy that he came in, great personality, and um, I never met somebody who didn't know how to read, ever. Um, I think a lot of us take the education that we were given kind of for granted, um, and it really starts to show how great that education was where we grew up later on, when you can really see how it applies in the real world. And um I started just talking to this guy, and he basically needed help drafting a letter to the judge. Um, I thought, well, let's try writing. I'm done reading. Let's try writing. Um, and I wrote this out. I edited it and re-edited it, and it took like three days to get this thing done. And it wasn't, you know, three pages maybe. And, um, you know, this guy, I'd help him do his commissary list in there because he couldn't read. And all these people that were around me were always like, what does he give you for doing that? I was like, he doesn't give me anything. I'm not asking for it. And that was kind of also another aha moment for me too. It was like just to do things to help other people without anything in return. And that's really big for a guy like me for being a taker for so long to just try to get anything out of anybody in any situation possible that benefits me. Um, as a result of writing this letter for this guy to get shock probation, he actually got shock probation, which was a shock. That's why they call it shock probation, that it actually happened. And that was kind of, that's that's just a huge thing for me is being able to help others. I saw kind of what, what I had a purpose in life for. I can finish things. I can help others. I'm of some use to somebody because for so long I was like, well, I'm worthless. You know, what, what can I really do out here? I'm worthless. And, um, when that stuff started happening, it started gaining value of my life and the things that I could do for people, that stock in yourself just went up like five points that day. Did the judge recognize or, or um, point to that letter as being part of the – no, did you ever find that out? No, not if... really. Um, I know some strange things happen when 
there's something bigger than you out the universe and you kind of recognize it and you're trying to tune in and just be on that same frequency. Um, my probation officer actually came and had dinner with my parents at my parents' house, I think twice. And I've talked to so many people about that and I've never heard anybody else say, yeah, that happened to me. Wow. And it, there are people that saw things I couldn't see in myself. And that includes the judge because I'm standing up there in front of the Honorable Fred Stein yeah. You know, when he's up there in his podium and he's got his glasses tipped over the front of his nose. And I remember uh, the girl that just went in front of me just got 15 years in peewee. Like she just got banged on the head for, for possession forged instrument, I believe, writing checks all over the place. Bang. And I looked around in the courtroom and realized I was the only one in the courtroom at that time besides um, the judge, the secretary. My father had showed up. Thank God. It just fantastic you know that's one of those examples right there of no matter how crazy stuff gets i'm going to be there you know and that was a sign for me of like this dude's a rock you know and um i noticed that there wasn't anybody around and he actually actually asked me to approach the bench he he got up very close (laughs) and i I don't remember exactly because i remember being very nervous but uh, I do remember him saying, I know how people like to talk in jail, that the judge did this, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these. I'm going to run them together. We're going to recommend you do inpatient. And and then he said, quote, I will never do this again, end quote. And I was like, that is better than any gift I've ever been given by anybody in this world as far as somebody who cared about my life. And the process, the positive side effects were already happening at that point in my life. And from that point, it was druggy house. It bound, hit the ground running, and it was just, I could see, I could honestly see for the first time what kind of person I was going to be or what I was capable of. You know, for so many years, I'd always walk past the mirror and be like, yeah, you're a piece. You know what I mean? Keep walking. What do you got? Nothing, you know? And I started realizing, like, what what the potential I have is. And so, um, just like, we were talking at the beginning, uh, you uh, hooked up with some resources and, mm-hmm. and did some speaking engagements. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, are you still doing that? Did, how did that feel? Uh, did it kind of take some, some motivation or talking to to get you to that point? Um, well, as far as speaking engagements, um, you know, basically with Northern Kentucky Hates Heroin, with, with Holly and Eric, um, great friends, great people. And when they came and asked me to speak for the middle school um, up in Fort Thomas for Northern Kentucky Hates Heroin, I, I, I viewed it as a, a great honor. It's a privilege. You know, going back to me drinking and doing what I was doing, nobody was asking me for anything. They were telling me to do everything, turn around, sit here, don't come back, Kmart, all that kind of stuff. And now somebody's asking me to do something, and I took that as, a, as something really big. And... Um, I just shared my experience as simply as I could put it. You know, I'm not out there to shock and awe any of these kids. Right. They're pretty much adults. The The hardest part for me is why I'm up there and I'm speaking to these kids and I'm sharing my story. I'm looking down over this, this 150, 160 kids, and I can easily put out 15 who have issues as much experience at I, as I did at that age or even past. Mm-hmm. You know, at... 12, 14, I was like playing with my bike, you know what I mean? Like disassembling things and having fun running around with the neighbors. And here I'm looking at kids at like 13, 14 years old, and I'm pretty sure they've they've really seen what's out there in the world thus far as 
as far as drugs and alcohol is concerned. And it, 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 it hurt my heart. It really did. How was it received? I mean, did, did you feel like it, it hit home or people, were they listening? Did anybody yeah. come up to you after? Yeah, a lot of people did. You know, I think with, with the kids at that age, it, just as I was, bulletproof. And so a lot of it still kind of maybe a little bit got in there, you know, and I think that's really all I was after was just if I could plant a seed or at least put the idea in there that there you're not alone in this. If there's somebody you need to talk to or if you're scared to talk to whomever, maybe your folks and somebody else, there's a million other people. Don't be scared to talk. Uh, One big limiting factor for me in the early days was where do I go? What am I going to do? You know, who's going to help? Who's going to find out? You know, all that stuff. And being able to just casually be open with these kids and even adults in general as far as, you know, you don't have to live this way. It's okay. There's help. You know, and it's not one of those things where you're going to get a book thrown at you or somebody's going to say, you know, you're a piece of crap because of this. It, It happens. You know, here we are, we're both good products of good towns, good schools, all that kind of stuff, and things happen. So it's it's not completely innocent, but still at the same time is it's okay, and it can be okay, and you don't have to feel alone in this. Is The biggest thing I was with the kids is just don't get stuck inside your head with this. It'll eat you alive. I'm sure you can relate to that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. It's a dangerous place. No doubt. Okay, man. Well, what a story and, and, a, and a turnaround, you know. Um, I, I feel like a, a lot of us are um, that get lucky, mm-hmm. even though there are bumps in the road. Mm-hmm. And I consider it an honor, a duty mm-hmm. to give back and to those that are not lucky, you know, people that don't make it and people that, you know, get you know, put away for mm-hmm. God knows how long, mm-hmm. um, where we got to be the beacons mm-hmm. out there and to, to help the greater good. And you're certainly doing that. So Thank you. Uh, I appreciate the time and sharing. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.